Keisha, this is our first episode back after we took a break. Yeah, and a bit of a hiatus there. Yeah, a bit of a hiatus for our guests, but we even took like a good month where we didn't record. We really, yes. on Instagram, there wasn't a lot of stuff being shared. We took some time off. To I was actually on break, yeah. Yeah, to be with <laughs> our families. And, and I mean, you still had your day job in part of that time too. Yeah. So- we talk about TV a lot. You often message me and ask about shows because you know I'm a hardcore consumer of all things uh, media related. What yeah. have you been binging over this time? So yeah, I used to feel like ashamed of my TV watching because I thought, I don't know, educated people, like maybe it may be more interesting if I didn't watch a lot of TV and that maybe like watching a lot of TV was like lowbrow or something. I don't know what I thought I was trying to be. But anyways, I like TV and I just want to like put that out there that I'm no longer ashamed of my love of television. I mean, I'm and never I, ashamed of it. I also worked in that business. So I, you were I have was, been ashamed of the word, my love of television. It was the worst. And I have a really broad range of what I will watch. However, I did binge in the last month, Bling Empire, which um, people ah, will watch reality know. TV and I will not. <laughs> uh, Bling Empire. I'm currently watching Selling Sunset. Yes. Um, what's the best thing that you've watched over the, oh, like that you've watched lately? <sighs> Made. I still haven't seen that. I feel like it looks difficult in that the subject matter is difficult and it's heavy. Yeah. Some of it's heavy. And I just, I think I wasn't in the headspace since that's come out. Cause I tend to, I like to watch the new things when they come out yeah, and, and I, would, I go through them quickly. I would say I probably watched made before things in Ontario really started to go to hell in a handbasket. Mm-hmm. And then I started watching Bling Empire and Selling Sunset. Well, even you know what it was, is it was in that like holiday season, which I just, I usually, I like, I stick like lately, especially I stick to the Christmas movies, oh, yeah. which I have to say, Love Heart on Netflix was, and Single All the Way, those two were the movies of Christmas 2021. If you are into the, that kind of, cheesy Christmas movie. Those are my top picks. I watched a bunch of them across any streaming platform you can think of. I was just saying what got us on the TV thing is that I know Yellowstone the last couple of years has been the number like one of the top two streamed shows out there. And I hadn't watched it. And so on Friday night, I decided to start watching it. And it is now a Wednesday and I only have two episodes left to season four. So that is what I would classify, especially for a, a mother of two kids yeah. in virtual learning, that that's a binge and I love it. And I think I forgot how much, like, I love Westerns, like Western movies. So it was kind of, it's kind of been, I've appreciated that kind of yeah that it's a western and I think I really like it and even though let's straight up own that it is super freaking misogynist (laughs) but I still love it and I keep going back and I know all the memes are about rip but I gotta say Kevin Costner is where is at in that show for me I mean almost any of them (laughs) yes (laughs) there's quite a few there's one of the wranglers I really like and I always forget his name. I know his actor name, but not his real name. Um, but no, Kevin Costner. He yeah, you love him, eh? He is yeah. 
Yeah. So um, I, I also watch that, but I, I don't binge it. My husband and I have been watching it for some time now. So we are watching the fourth season slowly. Um, but growing up, my grandfather watched Westerns and I always thought they were so dumb. Like, I was oh, like, what yeah. is this? Like, I never thought it was interesting. I always thought it was so dumb. And now I'm watching Yellowstone. I'm like, oh, this might be why he liked them. <laughs> that, that was up there. And then Emily in Paris would be my... Oh, I watched that too. I've been watching a lot of TV. Escape. Yeah. So when we're not recording and editing and writing show notes and posting on our raising kids (laughs) and raising kids, specifically when we're not doing the business of other podcasts, we are watching television. And so that's what we've been watching, but we're so excited to be back. And this episode is with two amazing women that I don't know, we'll let you listen to it, but it was a really great conversation we hope you enjoy the episode and as always follow us on social and check in with us and let us know what you think hi this is jen and welcome back to now what thank you for listening i'm tisha and today we are actually doing an expert edition on grief we are going to be joined today by michelle and rochelle from being here human you can find their website at beingherehuman.com. Welcome. Hello. Hi. 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 We are so excited to have you. Uh, If you guys have been listening for any period of time, you'll know very quickly that I'm really into this topic that we're talking about today. (laughs) Well, it's a topic that comes up so frequently with the types of stories that we're sharing, I think. And um, I can't remember exactly how I found you guys, but somehow I think I found you through Instagram or something and I was reading your stories and reached out to you and um, you were also kind enough to offer us to take your courses and we have posted about that if you follow in our IG stories and that's been really educational for both Jen and I, I think. So thank you for that. And Mm -hmm. We're hoping that today maybe you can bring some of that expertise to our audience. So, I mean, I guess we're here to talk about grief. So, what is grief? All right. Well, wait. I'm going to clarify that question. What does society tell us grief is, and then wh- what do you what do you counter it with? Mm-hmm. based so, on your lived experience and your experience. Yeah, I think what I want to say first, if it's okay, before we even get started, is that. Um, expert is a really tricky word, I think for both Michelle and I, yeah. um, mm-hmm. because, because in many, many ways we would say we are not, mm-hmm. um, what I think we would both say, and I'll speak for myself is that, uh, I'm an expert in my experience of grief. I'm an expert in my experience of loss, which for me, um, involves being orphaned at a very, very young age, not due to death, but my, uh, due to a combination of mental illness and intergenerational trauma, I was parented predominantly by my maternal aunt. And then when I was 25 years old, six weeks after my 25th birthday, um, my beloved Diane died of stage four metastatic melanoma after a very quick, a six month from diagnosis to death. And I was her primary caregiver. So my expertise comes from being in the world. I'm 41 and living most of my life as a bereaved person. And so I do have a master's degree in thanatology and you can read all of the professional credentials on the website, but that's not, um, 
the kind of expertise that either Michelle or I approach the work from. We really do approach it from um, what it's like to live in the world as people who really fiercely refuse to get over it, to move on, to let go, and to really claim the fullness of what it means to be a bereaved person in the world. So to really, really claim the legitimacy for me of my own grief and my own loss. Um, so I'm happy to share from that place. But for me, I, I, you know, we don't use the language of being here human of expertise uh, quite purposely. So that feels important to say. Yeah. Um, I think most people in our culture, and when I want to say our culture, what I mean is not um, any one individual, but the systems that we live within. So when we talk about culturally, what are some of the systems that regardless of our own personal identities, do we still have to live within? It's things like colonialism, capitalism, white supremacy, ableism. Um, these are things that regardless of our own intersecting areas of identity, we still have to live and work and figure out life and loss in these systems. So when I say our culture, that's what I'm referring to. Um, not my own individual. All navigating culture. that stuff, right? Yeah. And so I think our culture has a very, very strong, incorrect belief that grief is a feeling, that it's a feeling, it, that it is a strictly an emotional response, and that it usually and should look like sadness. Full stop. Um, and that is an incredibly, incredibly reductionist understanding of grief and therefore, however unintentional, quite a harmful interpretation of what grief is. The definition we use at being here human is that grief is our whole being's involuntary response to loss. And loss being defined as the severing of something or someone to whom we have held great attachment. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean? It means, first of all, that grief is not a response to death. <laughs> That's what it means first and foremost, right? Yes, grief, we have grief when someone has died, but grief is a response to loss. And we actually experience loss in a myriad of ways in and outside of death. So death is just one of the thousands of ways we can experience loss. So that's really important because especially through COVID, what Michelle and I kept seeing and hearing over and over and over again were people who said if they didn't have an immediate person from their circle die of COVID, they said, I'm not grieving. And yet we would hear things like my anxiety is through the roof or I'm feeling really depressed or I'm really struggling, but I'm not grieving. Right. And it was like that's an impossible statement. If we understand what grief actually is, it is an actual impossibility for a human being on the planet right now to not be in the experience of loss, in the experience of grief. It's just not possible, regardless of age, gender, sexual orientation, race, religion. It is an impossibility as a human animal to not be in a state of grief or loss in this moment after this experience. So grief is, when I say our whole beings, involuntary response mm -hmm. to loss. I mean, our, what makes up being a human, right? We're not just emotions. We are cognitions. We are physical bodies. We are spiritual beings. We are social creatures. We are sexual creatures. So grief impacts us on every single level of our being and personhood. It impacts us emotionally, psychologically, cognitively, physically in our bodies, sexually, socially, etc. And so when we start to see all of the ways that grief impacts us on all of those levels, 
suddenly the definition gets really, really big and really expansive because you can have thousands of feelings and never experience sadness. So the amount of people that say to Michelle and I, you know, I had this massive loss, but I haven't cried. I think I'm in denial or I think I'm stuck or something's wrong with me. And it's like, well, you had 172 other feelings and heartburn and indigestion and, you know, some kind of spiritual awakening and a change in your social life and experience. And then yet it's like, if I didn't shed a tear, I'm not grieving. And that just speaks to the myth of the fact that grief is a feeling and that that feeling is sadness. When really it's an experience that is so, so much more vast and so much larger um, than that. Uh, and then I just wanna to touch for a second on the idea of it being involuntary because in our culture, we really, really, really like to believe that we have control and agency over this experience. Yes. And just like every other major experience that human animals have to keep them alive, it happens without our participation and without our consent, just like breathing, digesting, pregnancy, childbirth, all of these experiences that the body is completely able to sustain on its own without our participation and without our consent. And so that's what we mean when we say grief is an involuntary response to loss or an involuntary response to a severed attachment. And I think you're so right. Like we do have this really narrow definition of what we think grief is. We think that it only applies to someone who has um, lost someone to death. We think that it only is like when they're sad. And there's also a lot of people wouldn't just come right out and say it, but it's definitely implied that someone could just choose to get over it like that they could just choose to stop grieving if they wanted to. Yeah, um, and the sentence, absolutely. And it's just as absurd as saying to somebody who's eight centimeters and transitioning in the middle of childbirth that they could just choose to stop. Yeah. Right. Well, and I think what's really interesting uh, about, or, or, or when you when something's a feeling, like a big thing that comes up in, has come up in therapy with my kids is that, feelings are like the weather. They're always changing, right? It can be raining and snowing at the same time. But in your body, like if it's an involuntary thing, there, like there's not an end necessarily to it. And I think that that is, you know, the idea of that if something is a feeling, well, it's going to end because another feeling is going to come. So you can be grieving right now and then you're happy and you're not grieving anymore. And that's right. anybody who's lived with grief knows that that's not how it works. No, it's it's not because I mean it is it does live in the body and you know you're going to be in relationship to whatever that loss is for as long as that loss exists, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, um Rishal and I talk about this a lot in the in the workshops, but you know, when people kind of ask you so like, oh, like, you know, if you've lost someone, you're still you're still feeling that and that's still affecting you and you know the answer is often well yeah because like I that you know that person is still not here like yeah. my mother died over 11 years ago and for as long as that's true I'm going to be in relationship to that loss which was significant for me for the rest of my life right so it's kind of you know it's kind of part of the culture that we have around grief that 
you know, we want it to have an end. We want it to have a resolution. We want it to have some kind of finite um, aspect to it. This idea of closure that people talk about, which we also kind of debunk, there's no such thing. And, you know, this, this idea that it has to come to some sort of a resolution, we internalize that narrative about grief. And so then individuals who are bereaved and who are experiencing significant loss, they start to actually take that narrative on for themselves and they start to be you know, critical of, their, of the reality that they are not, this grief isn't going anywhere, that they are still grieving. And years later, they're still grieving. And maybe even a decade later, they're still actually impacted by that loss. And then they feel as though there's something about them that's deficient. And that's mm-hmm. when you know, as a culture and as individuals, we turn to this idea that we have to find some kind of help or therapy or counseling to fix the grief. Yeah, because we really, really like to put things in little boxes and then just like put the lid on and put them away and be like done with that. It's interesting because we do. I would agree with you that we do, but if we actually look at that idea as just being a narrative and we look at how humans as a species or human as animals work, the truth is, is we actually do really unpleasant, messy, unneat things every single day in order to stay alive, right? So if we talk about digesting, right? We need to eat, (laughs) as humans, we need to eat, right? It's not a box that we can check. Oh, I had lunch. I had a well-balanced, nutritious lunch. I'm good for the rest of my life. I no longer need to eat, right? Right. That's not how it works. You don't drink water one time and then you're good. You've checked the water box. You don't take a great big inhale of deep, fresh air and then you're good on the oxygen front for the rest of your life, right? Right. It's ongoing. One person on the planet can't reproduce and then the species is good for all time. Every major thing that keeps us alive as a species is cyclical is ongoing. The only time the body stops eating, drinking, or breathing is when they're dying or dead. So if we actually look not at our stories that we create, but at how our bodies actually work, we do those things. I don't know, anyone who's been pregnant, highly unpleasant. Anyone who's given birth, highly unpleasant. One of the ways that we're able to continue intaking nutrition into our bodies consistently What's the very unpleasant thing we have to do often multiple times a day to make sure we have the space to continue eating? Pooping. We go to the washroom, yeah. Right? (laughs) Shitting isn't pleasant. (laughs) It smells bad, it's messy, right? We like to do it in private, it's not something we wanna share. So it, it isn't true that how our bodies actually work is neat and tidy and in boxes and with resolution. It's a story we, as our culture in particular, like to tell ourselves, but being a human is actually intrinsically messy and uncomfortable and unpleasant. And so grief is just no different. Grief is just hanging out right alongside breathing and digestion and reproduction. It's just gotten a really bad name. <laughs> well, it, it's not seen as in the same category as those yes. things. Yeah. So, so that's why it makes people really uncomfortable so they want to put it in some box that's like i checked in with that person they said they're good i never have to ask them about this again mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. or i did my i dropped my meal off i did my thing i'm done 
messy thing to happen behind closed doors, right? Like going to the washroom and we want the grieving people to like do that behind closed doors too. Yeah. It is also, it also kind of speaks to how, and Rochelle, Rochelle spoke about this earlier, but just how deeply, deeply ingrained and how pervasive this idea is that grief is a feeling right and so it we don't put it in the same category as all of these sort of other um more sort of metabolic biological physiological um functions that we have to survive right like breathing and digestion and and reproduction and labor and delivery and all of those things we don't put it in that category because we as a culture kind of refuse to see it that way. We so very much want to put it in the category of emotions, of feelings, again, because as we said earlier, it's it because then it, it, that makes it transient. That makes it something that we can get over, that we can move through and move on from. And so to consider it as something that is something that's so very essential to our survival, that is so essential to our ability to thrive as human beings, all of a sudden that gives grief a kind of gravitas that we almost don't want to um, allow it to have. Because then we actually do not have the ability um, to turn away from it and ignore it. It is actually something then as 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 a species, as individuals, as a culture, that we would have to actually give a platform to address it and actually have a conversation as a larger society, as a larger culture, that a lot of folks who are really quite happy where they are, especially in our very capitalist system, don't want us to have because it would begin to reveal truths about us as human beings, about you know the culture and the society that we live in. And it would, it would really make individuals kind of have an orientation to life and to loss that really wouldn't be so great for the continuation of our society as it currently stands within the structures and systems as they currently exist, right? If you look at this cycle, right? If we look at like at capitalism, which is this is one of the main systems we live within right now, capitalism requires two ongoing things to survive, right? And it requires the cycle of production, consumption, production, consumption, right? That's it. It's on a really, really reductionist level. That's what's required. One of the things that we know to be true about people who are really, really both death and grief literate, right? So people who really, truly, not in a hashtag Instagram carpe diem kind of way, but in a real true way, turn towards the fact that 100% of us do not make it out alive. Not one of us will make it out of this alive. When you really, truly turn toward that and face that, you suddenly start asking yourself some very pertinent questions about how much of your life you want to give to producing for most often someone else Mm -hmm. and how much you want to consume when you know we take none of this with us. There's a wisdom to be had in those who are really death and grief literate. And that wisdom does not serve capitalism. If you had a culture that was incredibly death and grief literate, the whole thing very quickly falls apart, very quickly. 
Because when we start realizing that all of the things that we give our lives in this very finite amount of time that we're here for, when we give our lives away to production, in order the story we tell ourselves is for our survival, and we realize that we could actually give that to one another, that there is enough to go around, that we could care for each other differently, right? Then the whole system starts to crumble. Yeah. But if we uphold and perpetuate and maintain this myth that grief is just this thing, this feeling that if you face head on and you express and you talk about and you feel it will shift. And within six to 12 months, you should go back to yourself and get back on the racetrack, right? Then in the for the brief person, when they get to that 12 or 13 or 14 month mark and lo and behold, they're still fucking grieving, <laughs> right? And then the whole world tells them, no, honey, that's not what it's supposed to be. Like something's wrong with you. And then the brief person spends how much more of their life and their time trying to rid themselves of this thing that the culture says they should be rid of because nobody sat them down and told them the truth that that was never on the menu. Yeah. That that's no longer an option, that you will be forever changed that not only did the loss occur, whether that was a person, a job, a helm, an idea, not just did the loss occur, but you too have been lost. The you that you knew the moment before the loss occurred has also died. And so there is no, you know, I hear this in the pandemic all the time, we have to get back to normal. There is no normal to go back to. There's no normal to go back to. Kids can go back to school. You can go back to work in the office. Every single one of us is forever yeah. changed by what we have experienced. Mm -hmm. So yeah. telling people that there is a normal to return to sets them off on a, you know, to lack of a better word, a wild goose chase where they will spend years of their life and hundreds of thousands of their dollars trying to achieve something that doesn't exist. Because if we told them the truth about grief, which is that it is one of the most human things you could ever experience, that it is not optional, that it's involuntary, and that the person you were is gone, and that it will take you another lifetime to live into this reality, right? Then people will get about the business of living with loss. And when you live with loss and you turn towards it, you become a really shitty producer and a really shitty consumer. <laughs> you do. Or right? you become we, too we, good of a consumer. <laughs> you, you are speaking my language. And I don't know that we've talked about this on the podcast, but after I was, well, even during the time that, like from the moment I was told that I was had cancer, like my whole perspective started to shift. Mm -hmm. in particular with regard to the consuming piece of it. Mm -hmm. And as I recovered, like there was this whole, you know, there was a lot of self-reflection. And I went through this period of like post-traumatic growth where I questioned everything about everything I'd done in my life and how I wanted to continue to live my life. And discovered minimalism and became a minimalist and got rid of so much of my stuff and like started an Instagram page where I like write about how much we consume and how we should stop consuming. And I mean, there's more to it than that, but like, it is absolutely true that when you start to understand that you can't take these things with you, 
that your perspective changes. And I've really become a shitty consumer. Yeah. How could you not? I mean, I read even Jen, I read one of your posts recently where you were like, get in front of the camera, right? You had these beautiful pictures taken with your boys. Like Mm -hmm. that's an impact of it, right? Like it's, I'm not saying I don't spend money, but what I spend money on is really different and why I'm spending the money is really different. Like I have the great privilege of someone who grew up in profound poverty of now I just got back a couple of days ago of I was able to take my youngest on a trip that I'd always wanted to take her on into the Gulf of Mexico where she got to see in the open ocean dolphins and manatees and we just had the most incredible time and maybe that would have been something prior to experiencing loss that maybe I would have said well we'll wait till do till she's older or whatever the excuse would be and it's like well now instead of buying you know, I've had the same winter coat for maybe 10 years. Instead of buying something like that, I do still spend them spend money, but it's like on, for me, yeah. what's important is memories. For me, what's important is not waiting till retirement because I, there's not a shred of me anymore that believes I'll get there. There's right. not a shred of me that believes that it's guaranteed that my nine-year-old will live to see 10. I can't live that way because it's not been true for my life. And so when I really really let myself understand and believe that I don't know, I that I 100% won't make it out alive, but that my time could be so much sooner than I believe. And when I start to believe that I don't know if my nine-year-old will get to 10, I don't know if she'll get to 15 or 18, I start to intrinsically not give a shit about things like her grades. <laughs> right? I tend to not care about what she wants to be when she grows up because I don't know if she will. So it reprioritizes me to really seeing her. What I really actually want then is connection. What I really want is to know and be known, to see and be seen for the time that we do have. And that shifts everything. Mm -hmm. And if all of us collectively were to have that shift, the whole system falls down right? And so we look at cultures that we have the arrogance of saying are underdeveloped, right? And I, as someone who's lived in many of these places, I have to then ask myself, are they underdeveloped or are they perhaps off the fucking hamster wheel? Because there are things that are more important to them than economic growth. And perhaps that actually, and I don't want to romanticize poverty. I grew up in poverty. Like I'm not trying to fetishize it or romanticize it in any way, but maybe economic growth is not the most important thing. Or the only thing Mm -hmm. at all, Mm -hmm. right? And I see our response to COVID where over and over and over again, this continent has prioritized the economy over human beings, over human beings. And there's no other lens for me as a brave person to view that is other than an entire culture that is so unbelievably loss averse and grief illiterate that we're not letting ourselves learn or change when 5 million people who were here on this planet 18 months ago are no longer. Not 100, not 2,000 or 3,000, 5 million human beings are no longer on this planet and the only public dialogue is about getting back to normal (laughs) what the fuck is wrong with us what is wrong with us yeah it's so true 
like we've got it everyone's like worried about the economy right we got to get back to normal we got to get people back to work we got to get people well but you have people supporting it because you don't have governments and people taking care of each other so people Mm -hmm. there are people small business owners that have to get back to work because otherwise they can't survive because there's no other way for them to survive so if they weren't talking about the economy then all of these people would be like okay then what the fuck am i supposed to do the who has a statistic that says that for every death and this is in particular to death related losses that for every death there are six people who will directly and forever be long-term impacted by it right mm-hmm. so you do the math on five million people yeah that's right? exponential so there's yeah. 30 million deeply impacted forever changed bereaved people in this world who have to live in a world where the only rhetoric is about getting back to normal yeah. where think of the celebrations that happened a few months ago for the 20th anniversary of September 11th, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I'm not critiquing that rightfully so, but that was for how many people? Yeah. And these mm-hmm. people forget even any kind of large scale recognition. They're not even given the chance to mourn in that beginning part properly because they aren't yeah. allowed funerals. They aren't allowed gatherings. Yeah. They aren't allowed. Like I look at people who have lost in this time and mm-hmm. think of how important it was for us to have a funeral and to have this celebration of life for mm-hmm. Warren. And they and get- your family come. And to have my yeah. whole entire family like here in this house with us. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and people can't, like they can't do that. And no. the world didn't stop either for COVID in the way that like other people died of cancer and people yeah. died of car accidents and yeah. people had a heart attack. Well, and, so and like- people that potentially were dying because they couldn't even get the care that they needed and deserved because of COVID. Of the pandemic, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I have to look at it from like these larger kind of macro lenses and just be like our relationship to grief and therefore to life and to the value of human life is so unbelievably pathological. Mm-hmm. It is so fundamentally illiterate. And so a lot of the work that Michelle and I do as people who've been the victims of a lot of this illiteracy and of victims of a lot of these systems and the lack of community care and mutual aid that you speak of, Jen. So part of what we do and what Being Here Human does is about uh, offering, yes, education and literacy, but with the intention and purpose of somehow finding a new way forward. Mm-hmm. That if we can reach enough people in our communities that at some point, maybe in our lifetime, maybe not, there will be some kind of tipping point where we say enough, mm-hmm. enough, this isn't working. We know it's not working for the bereaved. We know that. But yeah. if we understand, you know, even if you listen to our language in this culture, we say, if God forbid, da, 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 as if any of it is fucking optional, <laughs> as if it's not hundred percent guaranteed, you know, and it could be whether it's that we will become ill, whether it's that we will die, whether it's someone we know will die, whether we become disabled, welcome to aging. Like none of that is optional. So the fact that we even use the language of if speaks to how embedded this delusion is in us, right? We don't talk about it as certainty. And so part of it for us is like, can we create a tipping point where we start to recognize illness, disability, death, grief as 
a human inevitability. So we start to change our models of care, right? So that accessing care and support isn't dependent on your socioeconomic status. It is really, um, I don't know what the word to use is, to be honest. It's an incredibly moving and altering experience to see an empty body, to see yes. a body that is entirely still, to see a body that really does not have life in it any yes. longer. And from the moment the last breath has been taken, it's instant. The body yes. instantly transforms and whatever that is that we call life exits. Yeah gone and there is there's something so i don't know what the word is i'm looking for <laughs> you know, I, I mean the word i that comes to mind for me is surreal it's surreal there there's a moment where it feels when you're looking at the body where it feels surreal because as because we're so used to seeing some some element of you know uh proof of life in that body whether emotion. it's the whether it's the chest moving up and down or you know the eyelids fluttering whatever that is like we're so used to seeing those very very minute minute um you know proofs of life that when it's not there anymore it does actually feel surreal for me i cannot that's that's the word that i would say we that. don't even like we can't even describe what some of those are because we yeah. are so used to seeing it yeah it's yeah. just so, in some ways, like, and I don't want to like romanticize it, but no. it's so beautiful is all yeah. I know to say. It's yeah. Yeah. so in awe-inspiring in that moment too. That's that's because, a good word, awe-inspiring, yes. Yeah, because yeah. It, like, it stops you. It's yeah. so powerful. It stops you in your tracks. And it's like, all the knowing somehow is mm -hmm. in that one mm -hmm. moment where you just are like, oh, and so will that be me. Yes. And yes. so will that be, yes. it is undeniable in the moments when you are up close to death and a dead body where you yeah. are just like, oh, oh my gosh. And then I don't know what to say it other than it like, it takes root in your cells mm -hmm. and all on its own, you change. It just changes you because because you realize that you will be emptied, that every single person that you love at one day will be emptied, that you may or may not still be alive for. And it just, it just changes the way you show up in the world. It changes the way um, you love and care for those around you. It, it really, I think in some ways, like just fucking annihilates the ego mm -hmm. in so many ways. It is so unbelievably humbling to be at a death. And I wish in some ways, not in a gross voyeuristic way, but I wish we saw it more. I wish it was more around us because I think it actually would make us better. And I think, you know, there was a time in, mm -hmm. you know, Canada's history where mm -hmm. deaths did happen in the home yeah. and yeah. people did see it. And yeah was our concept, obviously I didn't live there, but like, was our concept of community care then different? Yes, of course it was. Right? Yes, it was. we understood yeah. death in a different yeah. way. Why? Because there was no paid to be their professionals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's why. Yeah. Because we didn't pass the buck. 
because there weren't experts to pay to help you, you manage it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. So we had That's the right. skills. I listened. I learned. Right? <laughs> You're so right because we, and then what happens when there aren't experts to divert to? You develop the skill. You learn. You look at what the elders around you are doing. You grow into your own role around it. Mm-hmm. Right? And when we say like, post-industrialization is when this really shifted, right? When urbanization happened and when we really started taking death outside of the home. If you think of the amount of time that humans have been on the planet, we're talking only the last 150 years that our relationship to death has changed. That Mm. is like, like it's a blink, a blink in time. So not only have we not always not done it this way, this is not the way we should, we, I think should be doing it or have been doing it at all for a long time. So when we think of like, how would we change this? It's like, just go back to the way it was. It's really actually not difficult. Like we did it this way for so long. And it's why we critique it in the workshop so much. And, and social workers often in our workshops get so offended by our point of view, because I'm like, do you understand that like even universities with your credentials have only existed for a blink of time, yeah. how do you think humans have survived for over six million, whatever billion years we've been here with suddenly the MSW without the MSW or without the masters of psych? Like right. we've figured this out. So the idea that you have to have preventable credentials or intervention to, to manage being a human being when loss is inevitable is one of, I think, the biggest fallacies we have. It's just so um, arrogant and absurd to think that, I think when 1018 was the very first university that ever existed, and it certainly didn't have a master's of social work degree back then, you know, <laughs> but like the fact that like, we don't have other ways of doing this is just not a true statement at all. It's just absolutely not a true statement. And it's not true that you need to go to some kind of professional institution and credentials to get the skills of how to actually care for one another. That's not true. That's interesting. And like everyone's silent. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's what we think. We think that if somebody is grieving, that they need to go talk to somebody. Mm-hmm. And of course, that somebody being a professional. Michelle, you drop the truth bomb. Oh, yeah. Sure. And that hopefully the professional <laughs> can help them. And I think you know where I'm going with this. So take it away. So, yeah, so all of these professionals that, you know, <laughs> we want to send our grieving loved ones to, myself to being one of them, I'm an MSW also. Um, like none of us, not the MSWs, not the family physicians, not the therapists, not the psychotherapists, not the psychologist, not any of those professions have a mandatory three credit course in grief and loss in their academic training. It does not exist. So we're sending folks to individuals to fix them from their grief. And those folks actually do not have any specific academic training in their professional designation that prepares them to be able to offer that support. Instead, in in almost every single one of those professions, including MSWs, they are taught specifically mental health, which is a very different um, 
it's diagnostic. It uses the DSM. It's, it's not the same thing. And so inevitably what ends up happening is you have these folks going to those professionals who are having, um, who are grieving, who are bereaved and time and time again, the only way that these professionals know how to inter interface and interact with them is to go through a diagnostic process um, which, in which the outcome usually is that they are depressed or suffering from anxiety disorder. And that's just, mm -hmm. yeah, the way yeah. that we have structured our system. It, it kind of like validates my own experience. I chose to find a therapist after Warren's death because the fact is I probably needed one prior to it. And um, I had a couple of really uncomfortable conversations with therapists who like, it, it was clear that they did not know what to do with yeah. me. Yeah. Um, and I ended up working with someone who experienced a traumatic loss themselves. And like once, like we had, we had, we had, connected and once i saw that i was like yeah that i need somebody that has experiences even if they're not gonna like because they're you know the boundaries in therapy and stuff if they yep. can't cross those and whatever like just the fact that they know where this is coming from was um so Huge. important to me Huge. um and for my own personal experience like reaffirmed why i got a therapist because i didn't have anybody in my life who had experienced anything close to what I had. Um, but, but yeah, it was kind of, it was really jarring some of these conversations I had that I was like, wow, you just like, oh. don't know what to say or do hey, and you're making it worse. <laughs> yeah. I don't have the numbers on this. Like Michelle, you might make a better, more accurate guess than me, mm -hmm. but I would genuinely say that like more than 80% of the people that come who seek out individual support at being here human, like more than 80% mm -hmm. come after having a really, really harmful experience with a professional. Yeah. Yeah. Um, after they've sought kind of very traditional therapy, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. That it's almost always after that, that they find us. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think as, you know, as far as I know still to this day, we are the only organization that has an exclusively non-pathology-based orientation towards grief. Yeah. That we really, really hold true that there's not a single, like, paid-to-be-there professional in our midst or in our ranks. Um, and that, that doesn't mean we're not paid for our labor, but it absolutely sure. means that nobody orients, the only place that people orient from is from a place of similar lived experience. Yeah. It is the bereaved being in community with the bereaved. Well, I think it, it, it reminds me of kind of, uh, I, I actually was in one of their, the levels of their workshop today. And there was a conversation about um, how you don't want somebody who has their cup overflowing to be the one supporting you when you're in grief. Um, because it almost like smacks you in the face of how like not okay you are was at least my was my interpretation of it yeah well it's like you know like poor oprah i'm just throwing her under the bus today let's pick someone else let's pick angelina right it's like it's really fucking offensive when someone who's a multi-millionaire or billionaire is like sitting next or has a photo opportunity with somebody who's actually starving from malnutrition 
Like that's not an act of kindness, actually. It's really, really fucked up. When you have the capacity, the single-handed capacity to actually like change their entire reality, it's it doesn't feel good. And it's gonna be a photo op to show the world that you're such a great person. Yeah, yeah, it just it doesn't feel good. So like I don't actually if I like have just lost my beloved and my whole world is shattered, I don't want to go to a therapist whose bucket is overflowing with abundance and love. It doesn't feel good. You know what I mean? I don't necessarily want someone who's drowning and we both go down, but I certainly want to look into the face of somebody who knows what it's like to live without. Mm-hmm. And maybe they're a little bit further down the road than me. So they have a bit more hope in them or they have a bit more muscle around the experience. They're a bit more fit to it than I am, right? But certainly someone who knows enough of the experience that they're not gonna offer me platitudes. They're not gonna placate me with euphemisms. They're not going to pretend that the experience I'm in could be any different with just a magical sentence or if I just read the right book or if I just watch the right documentary that somehow my life will change and that I will no longer be in pain, that I will no longer be longing, that I will, that my actual reality is somehow not my actual reality. (laughs) You could just like think positive and manifest that, couldn't you? Right. (laughs) Right? But we also talked about um, that professional distance that's required by all of these folks, right? So there's that Mm -hmm. like, that requirement to be objective and the, you know, the professional um, distance that needs to be maintained and, or that boundary, that professional boundary. And so you're, you're going and you're interfacing. If you're a bereaved person, you've had, you know, a significant loss and you're speaking to someone who can't actually identify whether they're part of your community. They can't actually share with you whether or not they can relate to the experience that you're having. They can't share with you any of their own lived experience, right? They actually cannot show up as a fulsome human being in that interaction. They Mm -hmm. actually can't, right? And when you Mm -hmm. are in the throes of grief, that is in fact exactly what you need. You need to have that human connection, right? You need to know that the experience that you're having is one that is shared. And when you go and you have those sort of professional interactions, um, that kind of connection isn't possible. Well, and grief on its own is so isolating. So absolutely. And so in your work at being here human, how is what you offer different? I think it's Mm -hmm. really different because Mm -hmm. we are at no time denying someone's reality or in any way promising or suggesting that we can make their reality any different ever. Right. Right. Instead, it's actually looking at someone and saying like, this really is as bad as you think it is. It really is this painful. It's looking at someone when they're telling you how terrible it is and saying, I believe you. I really hear you. And I really believe you that that is true. Right. So I know for myself as a brief person, and because I was really a, a young adult when I experienced Diane's death, um, I remember every time I would share something about my orphanhood, about her death, and the therapist would do some kind of, you know, movement towards CBT or positive thinking or any of those kind of things or reframing. My actual lived experience of that over and over again was 
you can't even tolerate hearing about my reality for 50 minutes. You are so uncomfortable right now. You can't even tolerate hearing about it. Without trying to change it. Fuck. Am I supposed to live it? Yeah. How am I supposed to live it? If you can't even tolerate hearing it for 50 minutes, right? And when things actually started to, I don't want to say turn around, but expand for me was when I met a community of other bereaved people, right? Who right away believed me. So none of my energy had to go towards convincing them that my reality really was my reality. Mm -hmm. And when nobody was trying to fix me or change me or tell me that it should or could be any different, then what I naturally got about the business of doing was just living with it. Not trying to get rid of it, not trying to overcome it, not trying to change it. It was just living with it, Mm -hmm. right? And then I did have someone tell me something that was so useful and it has been true for me. Um, And they use the example of like, I'm not somebody who works out. I don't like the gym. That's never been me, right? So if you all said to me, listen, the four of us really care for one another. Let's train and let's do a half marathon. That's just a goal that the four of us have. So we started training. The first day, the next day, the week, I mean, I would not make it four minutes without needing to sit down and dry heave, right? It would just be the most horrible experience and I would hate it and I would be in pain and day after day, the lactic acid would burn, right? But the thing is, is if I kept doing that exact same training or workout day in and day out, then for each one of us at different points in times and at different parts in our bodies, because we're different and unique, we would develop muscle and acclimate to that training program. And at some point down the road, maybe in years, the very training routine that at one point made me heave and vomit and be (laughs) debilitated in pain would be something that I would be able to do with quite a bit of ease. And it's not because the workout changed. It's because my body built muscle around it. It got fit to it. And that's been my experience of grief. Do I miss Diane any less? Fuck no. Do I long for her any less? No. Do I wish she had lived? Absolutely. And I've had 16 years of my life without her. So I've gotten really good at it. I don't like it, but I'm really fucking fit to it. Right? And so the difference in terms of how being here human relates is that I'm not asking Jen to be anything other than two and a half years following the death of her beloved. That's all she can be. She can't be at year 16. She's not there yet. And she's also can't be back at six months. You can only be where you are. So I'm just going to let her be two and a half. And I'm going to relate to her as such. I'm going to love her as such. I'm going to care for her as such. And when she turns three, we'll shift, right? It's just like parenting, right? I have an 18-year-old, a 17-year-old, and a nine-year-old. I love all of them. I parent all of them. But what my 19-year-old needs is really different than my neurodivergent nine-year-old. So I'm not going to parent them equally. I'm going to parent them equitably. 
and mm-hmm. give them what they each need at that time. Mm-hmm. And so we have to, in some ways, like ally ourselves, parent ourselves, parent our grief in that way. And I think that is what's really different at being here human is that people who come and be in space and community with us and learn from us, whether it's one-on-one support or safe house or our courses, they're just allowed to have their actual experience. And we really and truly don't need it to be any different and we don't need it to get better. We really don't, mm-hmm. you know, and we'll stay. The commitment is, is that we will stay. We won't look away. We won't bullshit you and tell you that if you do 10 sessions of EMDR, you'll no longer be a bereaved person. Like, you know, and what we offer, and I think you probably have both experienced that a little bit around us so far, is we will always 100% of the time speak from our own lived experiences with the caveat that they're only ours. That what is true for me or right for me was only true or right for me because I was me and my lived experience in my life and my circumstance. Mm -hmm. And that that doesn't translate. These aren't transferable (laughs) skills, right? So when I'm hearing yours, I'm going to be just as wildly curious as if it's the first time I've ever heard about it because it is the first time I've ever heard your loss. Right. Well, and it's just, it's like when you, when you, again, when, when you look at it, like where we were at the beginning as a, like a something within your body, you can't have dairy and I can, right? Mm-hmm. And so our bodies digest that differently. So it just serves when you can look at something as a function of the body, it's even that like it's going to be different. Yes, totally. So am I correct in assuming, I don't want to assume that you are cancer-free right now? Three years today. Okay, amazing. Right? Yeah. Even though you're technically cancer-free and they would use the language of like, you're over it, you survived, all of that. Do you ever get to go back to the person or body that you had before the diagnosis and treatment? Absolutely not. Never. Never. We're all parents on this call. Even if our kids, God forbid, but even if our kids died, right? Would any of us get to go back to the person who we were before we were parents? Nope. Done. It's just done, right? Your body will never be the same. Your body literally bears the scars and the witness Mm -hmm. of the experiences you've had. And grief is no different, right? One of the most devastating and beautiful, I think it's both, it's equally entirely annihilating and stunning to me, is that time only moves in one direction. And there's an incredible grace to that and an incredible brutality to that. Mm-hmm. It's both. Well, and, and what, what's interesting is you were just talking there and we've kind of touched on it in, in a lot of our, our conversations that we've had with people, but we really fight this idea that we change as people as time keeps going on Hmm. and you know what i mean it's like you're always trying to get back to that body or that person you were before the baby you're trying to get we're trying to get back to normal after covid you're trying to get back to who you were before your loss without being able to recognize number one that's impossible but number two maybe that wasn't the person maybe you shouldn't be going back to that person anyway Yeah, that's a good point. And not to like silver lining losses, but mm-hmm. there are some, there's some growth that happens after one. Like there are some pieces of me 
in my at two and a half there's a lot of like change but there are pieces of me that are better than i was before and whether it's as a result i mean who the hell knows but you're reminding me of um we recorded an episode with somebody whose child had survived leukemia and she said she would take her cancer away like if she had the opportunity she would absolutely 100 percent take that cancer away have it have had never happened but that she doesn't want, she would never want to give back the learning that she's had from that, mm -hmm. right? Because you are changed and, and, you know, sometimes we go through these experiences and we gain some insight or wisdom of our own. Or build different muscles around different things. Like I, I know myself yeah. so much better after that experience. And like a lot of my perspective has, has changed and I'm, I don't know. I'm more intentional with the way that I, I live and spend my money and that sort of thing. And I like that stuff, but I wish I didn't have cancer or PTSD or like any of that shit. Like that wasn't fun. Yeah. And that's where I wish like, you know, we only are allowed to have even one narrative about wisdom or about growth, which is that we have to be grateful for it. And yeah, I'm, I'm not, if I'm being really honest, like, and I know Diane well enough to know that if it was like, Rochelle's going to grow into this really amazing version of herself, but the price of it is your life. She'd be like, fuck, fuck you. No. <laughs> yeah, she she'd be like, I don't fucking give a shit. Be a cunt. I want my life. Like, yeah. She wouldn't. She trusts me. Like she loved me, but she wasn't that generous. <laughs> so I like, mean, yeah. I think there's a truth to me. What I always say is like, that's just what happened. She, yeah. I, that's just what happened. Her cells divided. She wasn't one of the people who was responsive to treatment. It was caught too late. She died full stop. Mm -hmm. That happened. And because it happened, there are things I experienced and learned that I wouldn't have otherwise. Mm -hmm. And some of those things I really love and value. And some of them I really don't. I really don't like being a person who is 100% of the time aware that death is right here. It's yeah. not a fun way to live. I have three kids and a wife who I'm so in love with. It's not a fun way to live, to be aware of their deaths at all times. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. that's not a part of myself that, um, yeah, it's not a part of myself I like. Um, it has aged me having this much loss. I'm really tired. I'm really tired. It has been an incredibly heavy load to carry, mm -hmm. right? I don't like that. And then the other truth is like, I'm a really fun parent. You know, I think I really like don't interfere in who my kids are very often. I really let them be their own people. I really don't have weird like helicopter tendencies or like needs for them to fulfill whatever. Like, you know, I think I told you on the call today, my little one always starts sentences with me with mama, can we negotiate? <laughs> right? Always start sentences. And I'm like really up for it. I'm really like, okay, hit me. I'll listen. And mm -hmm. if you can make a good case, I'm kind of cool with it. You know, if you can make a really good case for why mm -hmm. we need to go have Dairy Queen for dinner, I'm listening, <laughs> you know? And so there are parts of it that I'm like, I really love. I really love that. Um, I would say one of the parts that has come out of it is I'm really, really fucking clear on who my people are, you know, like the tide trust tried, tested. I know my people. And so I remember the day I write about it in our book. I wrote the day I laid eyes on Michelle. I remember it. 
And I knew instantly that I was like, nope, that's something I want. That's something I'm going to pursue. And we did. Yeah. Right. So like, it's gotten a clarity of vision, a clarity of intention to me. I really like those parts, but none of it is a singular narrative. None of it, you know, it's all both and. And I think the more space we can have for nuance and for complexity and for the just being, there really is space and room enough for the entirety of the experience that we don't need to play to our lower selves and like reduce everything to a soundbite or to a hashtag, you know, like to really allow ourselves the fullness of what it means to be human, which is really complex and really finite. Mm -hmm. And it's that finite piece that I think is the most uncomfortable for people. I don't know if you guys have read this. I was pulling it up for you. It's by Heidi Pre, but it says, um, and this is whether someone is living or dying, but it says to love somebody long-term is to attend a thousand funerals of the people they used to be. The people they're too exhausted to be any longer the people they don't recognize inside themselves anymore, the people they grew out of, the people they never ended up growing into. We so badly want the people we love to get their spark back when it burns out, to become speedily found when they are lost. But it is not our job to hold anyone accountable to the people they used to be. It is our job to travel with them between each version and to honor what emerges along the way. Sometimes it will be an even more luminescent flame Sometimes it will be a flicker that disappears and temporarily floods the room with a perfect and necessary darkness. That's like really uh, good. Yeah. It's really Thank good. You. Sharing Thank that you for us. that. <laughs> um, I know we've been talking for a while, but there's just one um, in level one of your uh, grief literacy course, you guys spend a lot of time talking about community care and I feel like that's a topic, maybe not using using that specific term that we have covered in in many of our in many of our episodes. And and I guess you know, what do you see? What do you see as community care, and how does that benefit really society as a whole? Well, we, I mean, we model it in part yes. um, through our workshops. We model it in our safe house, uh, well, not safe house anymore, but uh, well, yeah, safe house, actually, our 10-week safe house program. Um, basically, where, you know, as we've, as we said before, you don't need to be a licensed, trained professional um, in order to be able to support those who have had experienced loss, who are bereaved. Um, and so the idea that we try to really deliver in all of our workshops, and in everything that we offer, is that we are all capable of living with loss, of living with grief, of supporting others who are bereaved, of supporting others who've had significant loss. We're all capable of this. We have it inherently in us, right? Um, and and that's, that's a pretty strong message that we really do aim to try and get across to all of our participants, to everyone who does any of our, any of our workshops um, or other programs. Um, and, that the community that the, we're building, that that community actually can come together collectively and we can actually support each other through loss, that we can actually be there for one another when we are grieving. Um, and we do not need to have um, a particular designation or letters after our name in order to be able to offer that grief support. Um, that it is 
it is something that we all have a capacity and for. that being said too we have to be able to acknowledge that a, it's not going to look the same for all people but that it's not always a cup of tea and a listening ear Sometimes what community aid means is we need to pay for childcare for this single mom for the next year because she can't do it alone. Or we need to pool our resources from those who have more and make sure that food and a house cleaner are getting to that house once a week because she can't. Right? Well, yeah. So it, yep. I would just say it's like, you know, we had somebody in our community who was grieving, who then right before the holidays got into an unexpected car accident, their insurance wouldn't cover it. And so all the money they had saved for their kids' Christmas presents had to go to fix the car. And so we put the message out to our being here community. We pulled together the resources that we had and we made sure we got the gifts for the kids, right? Sometimes it doesn't look the way we've been taught because we've been taught that grief is a feeling. We think that support looks like this really specific prescribed emotional like sharing and we don't remember that these people are going to be living with this for the rest of their lives and so really having the courage to show up to ask to get it wrong you know and to really pay attention like what's needed you know if someone is saying to you like I just cannot get the laundry done I'm falling apart the kids don't have clean clothes get go Every over day. and do their laundry you know, or like send them a laundry service. Like, I think it really is in that way about redistributing resources um, in a way that's most needed, right? Like we have to get out of this idea that yes, sometimes people do need emotional support, but that if you're not like their closest best friend who they lean on, that then you get to be hands off and not step in and not offer. You yeah. Know? I, I think something that, that you guys have spoken about that I've heard you speak about before, and that's kind of why I wanted to bring it up is the importance of those concrete things mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and the idea that someone who is bereaved will always be bereaved so unless something actually changes in their situation while well, that piece will never change your your family structure could change things can change within your life but for as long as that doesn't change like nothing changes you need those supports yeah um and it is something that anyone can do for another person. Yeah, I would, I'm going to use you as an example. Making dinner as a single working mom for two kids is no different two weeks after Warren died than it is two and a half years later. There's yeah. no difference. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. If anything, you're way more fucking tired now. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. know? And so I do, it's why I, I do think there's... Um, it's all of our responsibility. It's all of our responsibility um, because your time will come. Yes. Your turn will come when you will need to be the recipient of the same care you've offered out. Absolutely. I know that when we first, I think, talked to you guys, that was a piece that like really resonated with both Tisha and I, because I feel like we're both kind of the kind of people that naturally do those kinds of things anyway and have been on the receiving end of those types of things and know the value of them. Yeah. Um, but I think people so often get frozen and don't know what to do. And it's like, well, I'm not that person's person. So obviously like they don't want to talk to me. Yeah. And I get really mad if I'm being honest, I get super prickly when I hear people being like, well, I'm uncomfortable or I don't want to say the wrong thing. Yeah. And I'm just like, get over yourself. Yeah. I promise you, that any it's amount not of about like, you. discomfort yeah. or awkwardness or whatever it is, 
I promise you their life right now is worse. Yeah. <laughs> you. yeah. Like having gynecological cancer is worse than you're uncomfortable. Having your husband go to work one day and not come home is fucking worse. I promise you. So get over it. If the worst is, is that you fumble and you feel clumsy and awkward, you'll live. Like mm-hmm. there's only so much I don't actually, that's not even true. I was gonna say there's only so much space I have. There's no space I have left anymore. (laughs) I'm like 16 years into post Diane's death. I'm 41. I'm perimenopausal. I have no space anymore for people saying, (laughs) I don't know what to say, being a good enough excuse. Figure it out. Yeah. Figure it out. Don't say anything and just drop a coffee off or send. I don't know what to say. Yes. I'm so, I'm going to get over myself and just show up anyways. Like just, it's not an excuse saying I'm uncomfortable saying, I don't know, saying I'm not so close. Like none of that stuff is actually good enough. It's all like, you know, when they talk about, I'm not straight, but you know, in straight couples, they'll talk about um, how men can often weaponize incompetency. Mm -hmm. Like, well, I didn't know how to do that. So Mm -hmm. that's why they don't do their share of the housework because I don't know how to do it. I didn't know how. (laughs) And it's like, that to me is the same thing that's at play with <laughs> non-bereaved people. And like, I don't know. I don't know what to say. And it's like, really? That's the best you have? Yeah. Like this person that's- I don't know what to say. I mean, that's a start. I used to be much more nice about it. Now I'm just like, oh, get over yourself. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's actually well, not a good enough excuse. Well, and, and going back to, I think what I said before about how it can be so isolating. So if everybody think of if you know somebody who has experienced a great loss and everyone around them doesn't know what to say yeah then they're sitting there alone alone. yeah Yeah. and that's why there are people like this poor you know older woman who was who was tasked from the hospital to sit with me with warren's dead body and i finally just looked at her and she kept trying to talk i go i just really don't want to talk to you i'd rather be here alone Mm-hmm. Like I have mm-hmm. people, thank you. I'm okay, but but there are probably people there that sit in that same situation who don't have anybody. But even that, right? I love that example because if people are like, well, what if they don't want me there? It's like, well, then they'll tell you. They'll tell you, and you'll be fine. Yeah, they will tell you. You'll live. If someone yeah. says, I actually don't want to visit right now, or like, yeah. I don't need any more casseroles, they'll tell you, and it's you'll be fine. Like, yeah. stop centering your own feelings mm-hmm. of discomfort. You stop in sending messages. My kids don't like it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, they had to tell my meal train to stop sending mac and cheese. Uh, <laughs> they'll tell you exactly. I, you yeah. know, I don't think anybody was offended. I hope not. And if they were, they're not your people. Yeah. Not just yeah. that, like, okay. But you're not going to remember. You're not going to remember who sent the mac and cheese. Like that they sent it's mac and cheese. You're remember that they sent something. That they yeah. sent something. Yeah. That they yeah. showed right? up. So it's like, yeah. yeah, we're just, we have to like get over this weird, like, if I can't do it brilliantly and perfectly like an expert, then I have no value. Yeah, it's like, yeah. that's just right. not true. No, no. And it, it just goes back to this whole idea that, that again, we, we talk about often about the importance of just showing up for people. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't need to be in this like, you know, life affirming way because you can't fix it. No. Well, and we put, I think people put so much pressure on themselves that they want to say the right thing as though if they can come up with some perfect sentence, they're somehow just going to like, Say this one yeah. thing and everything's going to be better. And better. like nothing mm-hmm. you say is going to fix it. Yeah. When people say like, well, I don't want to upset them. And it's like, you didn't upset them. Her husband got hit in the head with a piece of metal and died. That's she's upset. Yeah. And like, <laughs> like nothing you say is going to fix it. And equally, 
nothing you say is probably going to make it that much worse. But your silence might. Might. Your abandonment will. You're very very unlikely if you're trying to say the, like, if you're trying, you're very unlikely to say something wildly offensive. Like, you might get it a little wrong, but it's very unlikely you're going to be, like, wildly offensive. So, yeah. Maybe there are some. (laughs) There are people who say some really. There are there. Yeah, but you know what? They said something, and really trying, Mm -hmm. or just Mm -hmm. be prepared to have someone say to you, "That's a really dumbass thing to say." Stop. Yeah, I think that's something I should be prepared for. Yeah, you know. Yeah, definitely. Especially the folks who want to silver line it or impose any sort of religious ideals around it they they should be ready (laughs) i say the wrong thing to jen and she says hey yeah that's not helpful like the amount of uncomfortable i'm feeling in that moment is very minuscule compared to the absolutely absolutely and i think the piece that jen keeps saying which i think is really like important to remember in all things grief related unless you have figured out the way of bringing mm-hmm. back in this case the dead understand that there's nothing you can do so if yeah. you're tasking yourself with cheering them up or making them feel better or making them forget what's happened none of that's on the menu mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. none of it so when people mm-hmm. are like oh well i don't want to remind them i don't want to upset them or if i see them i might remind them have you they never forgot for a second yeah. in your life forgotten <laughs> that you had cancer have you forgotten that Warren? You're like, oh, he wasn't just at the supermarket, <laughs> right? It's like, it's so like, preposterous when you put it that way. It's so preposterous. <laughs> it's like, they are upset. They are struggling. Full stop. And it's like, like in that way of like, if it's not your job to, nor can you shift the circumstance. What you can contribute to is the environment and the circumstances in which they are experiencing the inevitable or the unchangeable, right? You can bring ease to their lives. Exactly. You can either be a presence that adds to the suffering, or you can be a person who creates space for the suffering. And that's just a personal decision of how you show up for somebody. I like could talk about this all night long, to be perfectly honest. Um, but in the spirit of time, <laughs> is there is there anything else you want to add? Um, I know you guys. This episode will actually probably be launching uh, late January, early February. Um, so I think that's when your safe house course, or I don't know what group. Launches. Yeah, maybe we should. Yeah. Uh, we do you want to go ahead and describe bit. that a little bit, Rochelle? Yeah. So um, February fourteenth, we begin, and Safe House is a ten-week program where um, we combine the elements of community, storytelling, movement, and sound to offer a space for us to metabolize grief. Right. So not with the aim of making it better or making it different, but of just digesting it right of just being able to metabolize it. And we know um, since the beginning 
of recorded time that humans have used a combination of community storytelling movement and sound to process grief and to process trauma. And so um, it's a group that is capped at 20 participants and the same 20 participants will move through the 10 weeks together. Um, it includes uh, every Monday, uh, you will get an email that includes photography, writing, reflections and prompts. You will have the week to be with those and then on every Sunday afternoon, we'll have a community care call. So a two hour community care call that's facilitated by Michelle and I, where we will come together, we will story tell, we will move, we will make sound together. Um, we've kind of been describing it as like an open mic night for your grief. Um, and then uh, in addition to that weekly call and the prompts that will ideally inform that call. Um, you also get two individual sessions with me throughout the 10 week period for some individualized feedback and witnessing. Um, and it also comes with something that we call a soft landings box. And that's like a box of really delicious, cool stuff that will, you know, hopefully provide some ease and some soothing for you as you go through the 10 week experience. Awesome. Yeah. And you can find out more about that at beingherehuman.com. Totally. Awesome. Thank you so much uh, for this. And I highly recommend um, their grief literacy course if Safe House is not um, for you. Whether you are grieving or supporting someone who is grieving, I feel like it could really benefit just about anyone. Thank you. Yeah, There's a reason, us. you know, that we called it being here human instead of like a grief specific name, because we didn't want it to play into that idea that grief is only for someone who's experienced a death. Um, it really is about grief literacy, but it is a course for humans. Yep. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Now What? If you've enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. Your ratings and reviews help more people like you find our podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and share this episode with someone you think would love it. Until next time, remember, your hard times are the chance to write another chapter.